Bibles tonight and uh, find 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to start there, and after we've read 1 Peter chapter 2, we're actually going to turn to Luke chapter 23. So after you found 1 Peter chapter 2, just mark that and then find Luke chapter 23. We're going to be spending most of our, our evening in Luke chapter 23. If you'll stand with me as we read from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse number 21, and we'll read through verse 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. I want you to focus in on that word example there, that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, and Lord, we thank you for all that we were able to do today in in your name, that we were able to do to further your kingdom. And we just ask, Lord, that our lives would be a living testimony to the gospel of Christ and that you would use us uh, to that purpose and to that end. We now ask that you would gather with us here at this time and and, and speak to our hearts, Holy Spirit of God. We pray that you would instruct us and teach us tonight. We thank you for this time. And we ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, if you go with me to Luke chapter 23, uh, Luke chapter 23, and we're going to uh, uh, read a few verses there. You can remain seated as we read these. Luke chapter 23. I'm going to read beginning in verse number 33. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Uh, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, uh, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, Uh, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the son of the Jews, or the king of the Jews, save thyself. And the superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the mist. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. 
A moment ago, when I read in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, I told you to focus in on the word example. Uh, Jesus and his suffering was an example for us. Now, we know that everything Jesus did in this life was for God's glory and for our admonition. He taught us. He was our example. He taught us how to live as obedient children. In John chapter 4 and verse 34, we read, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. He taught us how to be obedient children. He taught us how to deal with temptations. Turn with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 4. Now I'm going to ask you to turn to several scriptures tonight, so if you'll bear with me as we do this. Matthew chapter 4, and let's look at verse number 1. We read in verse 1, then, when Jesus, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now to save a little time, I'm not going to read all 11 verses, but I just want to point out a few things here. Look at verse 4. Uh, Jesus, But he answered and said, It is written. Now look with me at verse number 7. We see that Jesus said unto him, it is written. And the third time, um, if you look at verse number 10, we read, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written. Jesus taught us how to deal with temptations, and he taught us to deal with temptations through the power of the word of God. He taught us how to pray. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, we read, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Uh, he taught us how to labor. In John chapter 9 and verse 4, we read, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, the night cometh, when no man can work. But not only did Jesus teach us how to live our lives as obedient children, how to deal with temptations, how to pray, how to labor, but he also taught us how to serve. In John chapter 13, uh, let's actually turn there with me. John chapter 13. Let's all turn to John chapter 13. We get too lazy with the scriptures on the screen sometime. We've got we to gotta learn how to have nimble fingers and use this Bible. John chapter 13. Look with me there, beginning at verse number 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, uh, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Uh, and then uh, on, to save a little time, let's go, after, let's go over to verse number 12. Uh, we read in verse 12, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, there's that word again, uh, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, 
neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And Jesus taught us how to serve. He taught us how to serve one another. And these, and these lessons uh, that he taught us were for our admonition in our lives. And there are lessons to be learned from his death as well as learning lessons from his life. And if so, what could we possibly learn from Jesus' death? Well, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we read from verses 2 through 4, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And Solomon states here that wisdom abides in the circumstances. (coughs) Often, wisdom abides in the circumstances surrounding the house of mourning, the house of death. So, what lessons can we see from Christ's crucifixion that that would admonish us, that would be an example unto us as God's children? So with the time I have tonight, allow me to share a few observations with you this evening. First, from the death of Christ, we learn a lesson in forgiveness. Look with me at Luke chapter 23. Let's go back to Luke chapter 23. And let's look at verse number 34. Here in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, we see, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In this moment in Jesus' life, we see no animosity. No animosity in his heart. We see no anger. We see no disdain for those crucifying him. We see and hear from Jesus no cry for revenge. We, we witness no call unto his disciples to recompense this evil action. We, we hear no spiteful or hurtful railings or accusations. None such were cast forth from his lips. Rather, as Jesus hung on the cross in, in agony and suffering, the example he gave you and I was that of a forgiving spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, we read, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You know, someone once told me this, Be nice to everyone, because everyone's having a bad day. And you know, I, I've learned some things. I'm, I'm 54 years old, and I've learned some things. And one of the things that I've learned is that even your closest friends may say things and do things that hurt you in a moment of stress. Things they don't really mean. And things they would never normally do. So we need to learn to forgive. Amen? We, got to be, we have to be ready to just forgive and, and, and just forget. It was a kindness that caused Jesus to pity his murderers. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, they they do not know what they are doing. They did not fully understand 
at that moment in history, in that moment in time, they did not fully understand the consequences of their actions. They did not recognize, nor did they accept Jesus as the Messiah. And this is foretold in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where we read, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. They were ignorantly crucifying their own God. They were driven. These, these Pharisees and these Sadducees and these scribes, they were driven by jealousy. They were jealous of Jesus and the influence that he wielded over the people. They were driven by greed. They desired power and they desired authority and, and they saw Jesus as a threat to those things. And they, they, they were greedy for, for that, that power and authority. They were blinded by the devil himself. You realize most of the people that you encounter are blind to spiritual truth? How easy it is for those of us who have been enlightened by Christ to look down on a sinful world. How easy it is for us to be judgmental of those around us who are not fortunate enough to have been enlightened by the, a sovereign God. Now this, of course, does not excuse them from their crime. However, Jesus possessed a nature of love and kindness. And this nature caused him to look past their jealousy. This nature caused Jesus to look past their greed and past their actions and see their need for repentance, their need for a Savior. And that led him to forgive them for their actions. Yes, we see a great example in forgiveness at the crucifixion. We see this on another occasion in the scriptures. In Acts chapter 7, we see the stoning of Stephen. And in Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60, we read, And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord Lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, I have to just wonder. I have to just wonder if maybe Stephen wasn't present when Jesus was being crucified. And maybe Stephen heard his Lord offering forgiveness to those who were so heinously crucifying him. And maybe Stephen learned a lesson from the Lord that day. Maybe Stephen said, Father, grant me this, this type of forgiveness. Because in this time when Stephen was being unjustly stoned, what did he say? Lay not this sin to their charge. Stephen learned forgiveness. You see, Stephen didn't consider himself to be better than the Pharisees he was addressing. He realized that if it were not for the sovereign grace of God that he would be just like one of them. And I think tonight maybe we ought to remember that if it were not for the grace of God, we would be living lives just like some of those that we look down at. We would be just like those who know not Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. 
And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's it's but by the grace of God that I stand in this place tonight and preach to you. Because if you had known me before I was saved, you would have never pictured this taking place. And it's but by the grace of God that you're sitting in those pews tonight. Instead of reveling in some bar room or, 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 or watching some filthy program on television. It's but by the grace of God that we are what we are. And we best remember that every moment of our lives as we live on this, on this planet. Let us learn this lesson of forgiveness tonight. Instead of passing judgment upon those who are lost. Instead of hurling accusations against a brother or a sister in Christ. And by the way... Who accuses the brethren before God? Can anyone tell me? Satan. So when you begin to hurl accusations against your brothers and sisters in Christ, who are you imitating? Are you following the example of Christ, or are you following the example of of Satan himself? Instead, let us remember the lesson of Jesus on the cross, who did not accuse, he did not judge, He did not revile. Instead, he uttered, Father, forgive them. But not only do we see a lesson in forgiveness at Calvary, but secondly, we see a lesson in commitment. A lesson in commitment. Look with me now at Luke chapter 23. Be sure and keep a marker there, because we're going to keep coming back to Luke 23. And let's look at verse 35. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them, derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. We see a great lesson here in commitment. In Mark chapter 15, verses 30 and 31, we get, a, we get another a version of this same statement where it states, Save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, but himself he cannot save. You see that word, cannot? You see, the scribes and the chief priests made a fatal error in this statement. It wasn't that Jesus could not save himself. For we know by Jesus' own statement, that all he needed to do was ask of his father and he would have been spared this, this entire ordeal. In Matthew chapter 26, we read from the, from the Garden of Gethsemane, verses 50 through, through 54, we read, Then said Jesus unto him, him being Simon Peter, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Now look, look at what the Lord says here. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father? And he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? That thus it must be. Oh no, Mr. Scribe and Pharisee. It isn't that Jesus cannot save himself. It was that Jesus chose not to save himself. And in so doing, he chose to save us instead. And why did he do that? He did that because he was committed. Committed to... Fulfill the will of the Father. Committed to glorify the Father by his obedience, even unto his own death. 
committed to finishing the work that he was sent to do. I love as the songwriter writes, he looked beyond my faults and saw my need. Jesus' death on the cross is a magnificent picture of commitment. And it serves as an admonition to you and to me this very night. You know, I've been in the ministry for almost 31 years now. And I've grown very weary of late of the lack of faith and the lack of commitment of people who claim to be God's children today. So often I I see God's people wavering on decisions that they need to make because they're not sure how things are going to work out. They can't see the solution to the problem that they face. So they behave as if there is no God. They act as, as if they must find the answer, that God is not capable of making good on any of his promises. But let me say tonight, I'm so glad that the Apostle Paul didn't have such faith. For in Philippians 4.19, Paul stated, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know, Philippians chapter 3 and 4 are my favorite uh, chapters in the Bible. I, 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 I ground myself in, in Paul's admonitions in those two chapters. Did you see he said, my God shall supply all my needs. Not some of my needs. Not most of my needs. All of my needs. Don't you realize tonight that God has given his people all they need to be able to do all that he has called them to do? All the things that pertain to the will of God for Berean Baptist Church. Now you listen to me. All of the things that pertain to the will of God for Berean Baptist Church. God has given us all that we need to do that work. Where is the answer? It's in your hearts. It's in you. When God calls someone, he equips them. When God puts his hand on someone and says, this is what I need you to do, then that's, that's what we do. Everything I need tonight, everything I need, God will provide for me through his local church. I believe this with all my heart. I have believed this since I started in the ministry, and I'll continue to believe it until God calls me home. Everything I need, I can find inside the local church. I don't have to go to the world for anything. God will equip us to do what he needs us to do and what he wants us to do. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 31. We're going to take an Old Testament trip. Exodus chapter 31. You know, the Bible, the Bible talks about there, there arose a generation that knew not God. And you know what? Listen to me for a second. In America, that's where we are. We have a generation of people in America that really don't know God. They think they know God. They have a Bible. They read it. They study it. They pray. But they really don't know God. They've never seen God move the way that God is capable of moving. You see, the, a generation was came up in, in Israel that didn't see the Red Sea's part. 
and, and that didn't see the manna fall from the sky. And that generation knew not God, and they did not trust God. But look at Exodus chapter 31 with me, and let's look at verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him, see that? I have filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. Why? Why did he do that? To devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in cutting of stones to set them, and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted I have put wisdom, that they may make all that I have commanded thee. Did you see that? God gave the people the ability to do the work that he told them to do. Why do, why do our churches in America flounder? Because we don't think we can do it. At a time when, when we should be standing boldly in, in our faith, in a time when we should proclaim that our God will take care of all things that he has promised and all things he has committed into our hands, when we should stand boldly in faith and say, Lord, I'll do it, we turn to the world and say, can you help us solve our problems? But Jesus didn't need to do that because he was committed. He was committed to the will of the Father. And he was prepared to die for that will. Won't we at least be prepared to live for that will tonight? God has given us the ability to do what he's called us to do. Now, we lack confidence in ourselves, and I understand that. I know that I can't prepare a sermon. I can't do it. But God can, can give me the ability to do it, and that's what he's done. And tonight, maybe some of you are sitting in your pews, and, and God is moving your heart to do something, and you know that you ought to do it. But you're sitting there and you say, I, I can't do that. I don't have the ability to do that. I know you don't. I know you don't. And that's not, that's not why he's called you, by the way. He, didn't, he, didn't, he doesn't call those that have the ability to do what he wants them to do. He calls those that are the least likely to do it so that when it happens, he gets all the glory and honor. So from the crucifixion, we see forgiveness. We see commitment. Then thirdly tonight, we see a lesson in confidence. Let's go back to Luke 23. And let's look at verses 39 through 43. We read here, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. In the midst of his suffering, the horrors of crucifixion, 
Jesus took time to express his love for the thief to his side. Now, I think we, I think we just glaze over this uh, passage of Scripture without any real consideration. And, and I primarily blame this on the crucifix we find in the Roman Catholic Church, which to me is an extreme uh, offense. When you see a crucifix in the Catholic Church, what, is, what does it look like? Oh, it's got a little loincloth. And he's, the Lord's there, and there's a little drop of blood there, and a little drop of blood there, and there's a few little trickles of blood here. And there's a few trickles of blood on his feet, and there's a, there's a neat little cut here with a little trickle of blood. It doesn't look that bad, does it? I mean, it's, it's not horrifying. But yet, in Isaiah chapter 52, when we read from Isaiah chapter 52 concerning the description of Christ and what he looked like at the crucifixion, this is what we read. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. I, I read some commentary on this, and Jesus was a bloody, horrible mess as he hung on that cross. His, his abdomen was ripped to shreds. You wouldn't have been able to notice the spear thrust in his side from all the other gashes and cuts on his body. His joints, every joint in his body was dislocated. He was, he was just a horrible, bloody mess. The misconception of the true suffering of Christ can cause this moment in history to seem mundane and insignificant. But just think about this for a moment. Think back on the most painful moment in your life. A time when your entire world was crashing around you, when trouble came at you from every direction. Now suppose at that exact moment in time, someone came to you and wanted you to dismiss your suffering and worry about their problem. Do you suppose that you could take the time to comfort and assure them that all things were going to work out for them? Well, you could if you had the confidence to know that the things that you were going through were going to work out okay for you. Jesus' statement to this thief on the cross was, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He didn't say, Today you're going to be in paradise. He said, Today you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, this statement exclaims the confidence that Jesus himself would be in paradise. He could make such a statement because of his confidence. Paul had this kind of confidence. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, we read, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. It was this confidence that helped him live his life for Christ. As we read in Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, where Paul states, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Again, he states in verses 23 through 25, For I am in a strait betwixt two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful 
for you. And having this confidence, Paul states, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Yet so many believers today lack the faith that it takes to live their life with Christ in the center. And this is seen by our lack of commitment as Christians and our lack of confidence as believers. And this is demonstrated by our dependence upon the world and its resources for our everyday life. Our nation was founded by Christians who possessed confidence. Men and women who risked their lives and the lives of their children going forth into a new world with only their faith and their confidence in God to guide them, not knowing what awaited them over the horizon, but knowing that God was in control and that his providence was all they needed. They knew Romans 8.28, where we read, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. They knew and believed that dying in the will of God was better than living outside the will of God. Could America be founded? Could a nation such as America in its, in its beginnings be founded and built by the Christians of today? Uh, not in my opinion. We can't even get Christians to faithfully attend church. How would we get them to live with the faith and confidence it would take to forge a new nation of believers? Christ hung on and suffered on the cross, but he knew that was not his final destination. I love that old song, This world is not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's golden shore, and I just can't feel at home in this world anymore. Christians, we need to wake up. And we need to realize we're on a pilgrimage. We're on a journey. This is not our final destination. This life is not all that awaits us. We have a home in heaven. We will be with Christ for all eternity. Live our lives in expectation and in confidence of those things. So at Calvary, we learn forgiveness we learn compassion. We learn confidence. And lastly tonight, I want us to see an example of completion. Look back at Luke chapter 23 with me. And let's look at verse number 44. And it was about the sixth hour. And there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened. And the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Another version of this in the Gospel of John, chapter 19 and verse 30, states, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished, but not for his life. For we know that Jesus lives today. Therefore, death has no power over him. The grave could not keep him. So what did he mean by it is finished? Paul stated in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. 
I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Jesus finished the work he came to do. He came to conquer the nature of flesh. And this he did by his virgin birth. He came to conquer the power of sin. And this he did by his sinless life. He came to conquer the wages of sin. And this he did by his crucifixion and his ultimate resurrection. His work is done. It is finished. That's what the Lord meant. Not his life, but the work that God had called him to do. And in in Christ's crucifixion, we see an example of completion, of finishing our task for God. Now let me turn my attention to you and I tonight. We too have been given a work to do for God. We in the Christian life refer to this work as our race for Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this race that we're in tonight, the prize in this race does not go to the fastest, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing because I'm not very fast. And it doesn't go to the strongest. Now, there I might have a little competition, but I might be able to compete a little bit, but no. It does not go to the fastest. It does not go to the strongest. The prize in our race goes to all who finish. That's right. All you have to do is finish. Just finish it. When I was in high school, uh, we, I was on a track team, and we were at a track meet, and our, one of our mile runners, uh, the guy who ran the mile, pulled a hamstring, and he couldn't run. So the coach came over to me, and he said, Dalton, I need you to run in that race. I said, Coach, I don't run a mile. I can't run a mile. He said, yes, you can. He said, all you need to do is finish. If you just finish, just finish, we win the track meet. We had, we had accumulated enough points. All we had to have was somebody finish the mile race. Now, he said, can you do that? Can you just get out there? I said, I don't care if you walk it. Can you get out there and just finish? I said, I'll do it, Coach. So I got out there, and they fired the gun, and I took off a running. And the first lap was easy because I ran the quarter mile. I, I was used to running one lap. Second lap got a little harder. Third lap was brutal. Fourth, I come around to start the fourth lap, and I mean to tell you, I'm on my fifth win. I got nothing left. And as I was coming around the backside, I decided, well, what I'm going to do is pretend to trip and fall. And that way I'll have an excuse for not finishing the race. So as I was running down the back straightaway, I tripped myself. Did a real good job, too. Nobody caught on except the coach. Tripped myself, went flying into the hurdles, and cut a big old gash in my, in my shin on one of the hurdles. I'm laying there on the field, and they got a, they got a, a medic there, and he's tending to my leg. And co- I see the coach coming across the field. got his hand in his pocket, and he's shaking his head. He got over to him. He looked me in the eyes. He said, you couldn't finish. You had to quit. And that's all he said. And he turned around and walked away. And I've heard those words... I've heard those words in my ears since that day. You know, there's nothing worse than quitting. You know that? 
Lose if you got to lose, but don't quit. I used to tell our basketball players all the time, it's okay to get beat by a better team. It's okay to get outplayed. Just don't quit. It's not okay to quit. We need to finish. Just keep on going. Don't stop. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Consider the admonition of Solomon. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Solomon writes, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. Again, listen to the admonition of Paul in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, where he writes, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Folks, failure is not an option. You and I are not built for failure. Did you know that? As a child of God, you're not built for failure. You're, you're created for success. Turn with me one more time. Ephesians chapter 2 and we're going to be done. I intended this to be a short message. It's John's fault. He's sitting there and he's not listening right. So I got to slow down. Ephesians chapter 2. Look with me there. I said, we're not, we're not built for failure. We are created for success. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 2. I don't have time to read all of it. So, well, yes, we are. We're going to take time to read all of God's word. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. See, we were, we were designed, we, 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 we were living in failure. We weren't designed for failure, but we were living in failure. Verse 2, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now let me stop there for a moment. Let me interject. A lot of so-called Christians are living in verse 3. They're fulfilling the lust of the flesh. They're fulfilling the desires of their hearts and of their minds. They claim to be God's children, but they're not. Because their lives prove it out. Look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You notice he doesn't say that he will make us sit in heavenly places. Did you notice that he said he has made us sit? We already have citizenship in heaven. Uh, you already have a home in heavenly places. Verse number 7. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are created, I say tonight. If you are born again, if you are a child of God, you are created for success, not for failure. So don't live in failure. Don't live in sin. Don't walk in unrighteousness. You were created when you were regenerated. When, when God quickened you, 
He made you a new creature. Behold, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And you were created and you were given the nature of Christ. You were given the mind of Christ. You were given the righteousness of Christ. You are created to succeed in your Christian walk. So don't quit. Walk that mile if you have to. Who cares? That's what coach told me. Walk it. Just cross that finish line. That's all, you, that's all I want you to do. And God wants you to cross that finish line of this life with success in good works, which he has ordained that we should walk in them. In good works. Now, how can one who has been ordained by God to walk in good works, how can we quit? How can we fail unless it is by our own lack of faith, by our own lack of confidence, by our own lack of commitment? So finish your race. Stand before Christ and listen, hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the rest of thy Lord. Calvary's lessons. We learned some lessons from the death of Christ. We learned a lot from his life, didn't we? Many, many, many examples in the life of Christ. But there are also examples in his death. Examples such as forgiveness. Let us learn to be a forgiving people. Examples of compassion. Examples of confidence. And examples of completion. Let us leave here tonight and look at Calvary as as a school as a classroom, a place of learning where God showed us how we, as his children, ought to live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we're, we're so unworthy. We're so feeble. You created us, Lord. You've created us for success, yet we continually fail. And it's because, Lord, we, we, don't, we, we lack confidence. We We lack commitment. We lack faith. So we ask tonight that you would teach us these lessons, that you would strengthen us. I pray, Father, that you would give us the confidence to know that you have have given us the ability to do what you've called us to do, and let us no longer waver and falter over what we should do, but let us do the things that we know to do, knowing and believing that you are going to give us what we need to do it. Let us, let us separate from the world as, as a body of believers and live our lives and conduct our lives totally dependent upon you. Thank you, Lord, for all those that have come out tonight. We do pray. I pray right now for our pastor. and I pray right now for Pam that you would comfort them, that you would strengthen them, and give us the compassion to minister to them. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. We praise you for it. And as we go our way, we ask that you would Uh, Help us to walk worthy of you. Thank you for this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks.